Welcome to the Kingdom Life Podcast, where we talk about life with God in His Kingdom. I'm Connie Willems, and today we'll be talking with someone outside All Saints, Derek Morphew. Derek is one of the prominent voices in Kingdom theology worldwide and has also been responsible for the development of the Vineyard Institute. You may have had a chance to hear Derek in person when he was with us for the Kingdom Come weekend. That time was so rich, we wanted to be able to talk more in person. So, welcome, Derek. Thank you. I wanted to start off just by helping people know you a bit more. People might have read some of your writing about kingdom theology or been familiar with you around the vineyard or as a pastor, but you have a long history of life with God. So, Mm. Could you tell us how you are experiencing God these days? Well, I think you mentioned prayer earlier. Mm. I live looking out over a lake with a mountain behind me and the sea within 10 minutes walk. And I've never been good at just sitting in one place and praying. Um, not that it's impossible, but I grew up in the bush. Mm. So I pray best when I'm walking by myself, either up the mountain or along the beach or along the lake. And um, I don't really have this kind of quiet time discipline that I had early as a Christian because it was drummed into me. (laughs) I sort of go more with the ebbs and flows of what's happening. Hmm. you know, so there are times when I walk a lot and pray and think a lot. Uh, there are other times where I'm really into study. And I suppose the other thing that has happened to me in the last 10 years is a fascination with Jesus hmm. as a historical figure. And a lot of that is reflected in my big fat book, The, the Kingdom Reformation. And the more I have looked at him as a historical figure, the more he has grown on me. How so? So, you know, understanding Jesus within Judaism at the time and the way the historians have started unearthing the world in which he lived and what he meant and what he said and the radical nature of his proclamation and ministry uh, is not really that appreciated in the general sort of preaching of Jesus. Um, So, you know, the fact that he was a prophet, that he was what is called an eschatological prophet, a prophet announcing the end of Mm. this age and the coming of the next age and his challenge to the whole religious system, on and on. I've just seen more about him than I had. And I think there's this reciprocal relationship between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. So, you know, my conversion was a radical, sudden conversion and the born-again experience very real to me. And from then on as a young man, 18 years old, you know, I could say I know Jesus by faith. But as I've grown to see him as a figure, 
what I have my faith in has expanded. Mm. So your faith then has expanded. Has expanded, because it's the object of our faith that's all important. And I suppose the other thing is that over the years, through times of great spiritual renewal, like, you know, my first experience was Pentecostal and then the Jesus people and then Wimber and then the Mm -hmm. Toronto thing. Um, Experiences of God and what I conceive of as possible when God is present has drastically changed. Has expanded? Expanded, Mm -hmm. you know, so that, you know, nearer the end of the process, I have to look back and say I had absolutely no idea as a Uh young Christian what is possible. Um, So I suppose the most outstanding single experience that was like a peak experience during the Toronto Mm. outpouring was joy. Hmm. Um, I was filled with joy that was so great that all I could do is my body was like jumping up and down. (laughs) And because I know that the joy we experience now is just a pre Luminary joy. I mean, to conceive of what it must be like to ultimately be in the presence of God is like just unbelievable. And um, the predominant expectation I actually have is joy. So, anyway. And you have this visceral, physical memory. Oh, yes. Of what it is. Oh, absolutely. And every now and again, Mm. you know, in worship and so on. I get a bit of that again. But you can't, you can't live by these charismatic experiences. You've got to have your yeah. devotions in between and just carry on. So I suppose those and just ordinary prayer and then this fascination with Jesus, the study of Jesus has like fed me. It's been my mm. devotional, you know, food. What happened 10 years ago that launched you into that? Well, it's maybe longer now. Maybe it's a sign that I'm getting older than I think it's <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, when I shifted from being a pastor to specializing in vineyard education, I felt I needed to catch up because I did my PhD, you know, in the 70s. Well, no, about 1980. Mm. And then I just got so busy planting churches, pastoring. And I thought... I need to catch up. So I actually went to a friend of mine called Graham Twelvetree. And I said, look, tell me what to read. (laughs) And I told him what I wanted to study. And so he gave me a book list and I started. And then the one led to the other. And so what I write about in the Kingdom Reformation is the result of that, maybe it's more like 20 years now, (laughs) um, the study of Jesus as a historical figure. Um, Yeah. It's intriguing to me that it's been a fascination that seems like it hasn't waned. No. That there's enough there Mm. to continue to grow and grow. Yes. No, that's true. It's a massive um, topic. And um, yes, it's a never-ending discovery. (laughs) I bet from his end, he's also looking at you saying, Derek, I have more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, I kind of want to camp on 
Jesus, especially as it relates to the gospel. Mm. I was telling you earlier that I've been in discussions recently about what is the gospel. Mm. And I've come out faintly dissatisfied with kind of how we're talking about it. I think it's probably richer, but I've been around people who are talking about and discussing and kind of reacting against the idea of gospel with the atonement where the wrath of God is satisfied mm. through Jesus' sacrifice on the mm. cross and the um, almost a distortion of who God is that mm. has come through a heavy emphasis on that. Mm. And I know you have a a way of kind of laying out the entire scope of who Jesus is and what that means for what the gospel is. Mm. That's a huge invitation right there. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, the big word that I use is reductionism. Hmm. You know, popular would be shrinking something down. That's a much bigger reality. And there's a long history of reductionism, going right back to the split between the Eastern and Western Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church's view of the Trinity that has left it more open to the mystical Hmm. presence of God And then you go, you know, the reformers for all the great things they did said miracles had ceased, and so there's a reduction there. And so you go on. Just a slicing and a narrowing down. Yes, stage by stage. Hmm. And then the doctrine of the atonement is particularly, or salvation maybe, you Hmm. know, the atonement is like a subset of the doctrine of salvation, but the doctrine of salvation has become essentially the doctrine of the atonement. And then. In the doctrine of the atonement, one element of it has been elevated. So let's maybe start with the the narrowest Mm. and then try and build from there. So in Paul's letters, you find five metaphors of the atonement. Now, first of all, can you just describe when we say the atonement, what are we talking about with that? The cross, the meaning of the cross, basically, and how because of the cross we are saved. And so in theology, there are theories of the atonement, and they are based on scripture. And one of the best expounders, well, the two greatest expounders of the atonement are Paul and the writer to the Hebrews. Hmm. So in Paul, there are these five metaphors. So the one that is really always preached in evangelicalism today is called the legal forensic Metaphor. Legal forensic. forensic. That reminds me of a TV program of some okay. kind. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a courtroom scene. Okay. It's prosecutors and defendants. And because Jesus died for us, we who were guilty are declared not guilty, the doctrine of justification through faith. And that is possible because he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And so that view is normally associated with the idea of punishment and substitution. That God was going to punish us because of sin, but instead that punishment landed on Jesus at the cross. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's called the penal substitution view of the atonement. And that's the one that a number of popular writers are criticizing, that it portrays God as an angry God, that he is a cosmic child abuser, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in some ways, that the popular criticisms are really criticizing a straw doll. It's a kind of um, 
portrayal of the doctrine of penal substitution in Scripture that is a caricature of it. Mm. So that's the first thing we have to say. So it's a distortion of what Paul wrote. Right. Okay. But it, it, what it does is it shows that generally in evangelicalism, that is the one metaphor that is mm. chosen and the others tend to be neglected. So the other ones are, for instance, the sacrificial metaphor, which is a temple scene. And that's more to do with cleansing. In the book of Hebrews, he really focuses on that. And the sacrifice of Christ fulfilling all the Old Testament sacrifices and so mm. on. Then there's the reconciliation metaphor, which is a family metaphor that the mm. father welcomes us. And the prodigal son, you know, the father welcoming his prodigal son and that we being justified or reconciled with God in Paul's language. The other one is the redemption, which is a, a commercial metaphor. Redemption was well known in the Paul's world as a way a slave bought himself out of slavery or was bought out of slavery. And so in the slave market, you could be bought and gain your freedom. And so the idea that Christ liberated us, you know. And then the one that is the ancient church's view, the, the fathers of the church, and as one theologian had said, has been the predominant view of the atonement for the first thousand years, mm. is Christus Victor, or in Paul's language that Jesus overcame the powers and was triumphant over them. So Christus Victor would be a Latin phrase? Yes, it's a Latin phrase. Uh, I think the triumph and victory of Christ mm. would be a more biblical term. But it's a kind of military cosmic warfare view. And it's the closest to what we call kingdom theology because the ministry of Jesus is about the clash of the kingdoms, the coming of the rule of God clashing with the opposite of the rule of God. And so the first thing we've got to say is with the atonement itself, we can't just elevate one of the five. We have to say all of them say something about the atonement, and each one, when it affects us subjectively, does something different for us. Hmm. And we need all of that. Then the next thing is generally in Protestantism, the cross is elevated and isolated from the rest of the story of Jesus. So first of all, the resurrection looms large in the mm. New Testament. And that's where the Greek Orth Eastern Orthodox Church, basically, their whole view is based mm. on the resurrection. Um, and, I mean, we know Jesus died and rose again. But if you don't see how important the resurrection is, you can't really get the thing right. Then the ministry of Jesus that precedes the cross is also important because... The cross is the climax of a story of conflict between the powers that his ministry unleashes. And the resurrection is then his triumph over the opposing powers in that conflict. So understanding his ministry is important to understand how he would have understood his crucifixion. Um, and then, of course, his resurrection led to his ascension and the outpouring of the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit. So salvation involves the whole story of Jesus. And it's not just that we believe in the story, but that we must receive every part of the story 
almost like receiving a sacrament. Like I would receive communion. Like we receive communion by faith and ministered through the Holy Spirit. We receive all of Jesus. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to elevate for us in different times of our lives which part of that story is important. But Jesus' ministry, fundamentally, he came as a liberator and he liberated people from oppression, the demonic, sickness, sin, poverty, injustice, death. And for a lot of the world, especially the majority world that I come from, they don't resonate at first with a legal transaction. Mm. They know there are powers that oppress them. And sometimes it's, you know, ancestors and witchcraft and the demonic. And Jesus as the liberator, who is still the liberator today, through, you know, the preaching of the gospel, is really more important to them than anything else. People who have grown up in the West that is very litigious and legal, of course they can resonate with the legal approach. But the one story that unites it all together is really Christus Victor, Hmm. that he came sort of proclaiming the kingdom and a war broke out, if you like, that builds to the cross. He wins the war, and then he pours out his spirit so that we now become part of those who win the war with him and seek to, you know, uh, bring the whole of humanity back under God. So we need each part of it. Now, simply put, it is through the cross that our sins are forgiven. But just to have your sins forgiven doesn't really change a lot. Mm -hmm. So the resurrection is where we talk about the rebirth. He came alive and breathed into his disciples the new life, the immortal life, and his nature being born within us so that we become a new creature And that whole teaching of Paul, put off the old you and put on the new you, and that you can grow more and more into the new person that you are becoming. That is all how we receive the resurrection into our lives. And then the experience of receiving the empowering of the Spirit, it happens at different times for different Mm. Christians, but it isn't necessarily the same as the forgiveness experience or the born-again experience. And for some people, it's a distinct experience, out of which we can start functioning in gifts of the Spirit and we can be equipped to witness for Jesus. And that is an essential element in the Christian life. That's sort of what makes charismatics charismatics, I suppose. Yeah. So that's a little bit about how we must have a full gospel of the kingdom rather than a reduced gospel. And narrowed down. So... Really, when I am experiencing rebirth Mm. or participating in the ministry of Jesus Mm. or experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm participating in the fullness of the gospel. Exactly. Exactly. Are there times in your life where one of those has become particularly meaningful to you? Yes. Yes, definitely. I mean, it tends to go with the rhythm of what I'm writing about and teaching at a given time. Um, So, you know, at one point I just did a lot of teaching about Christian identity and Mm -hmm. the new person we are in Christ and how it confronts 
the way the modern world devastates people's sense of self and of self-awareness and so on, um, and how we mustn't try and build up the sense of identity through a humanistic kind of, um, you know, find find the divine spark within <laughs> like Gnosticism. Be your best self. Be yeah. your best self. But but actually, we were... we. Our nature was depraved and needed to be reborn. And only by the life of Christ within us can we, you know, find that new identity. And we should have a better reason to help people have a positive, hopeful view of themselves than any kind of humanistic reason. Um, so at one point I was really pre- preoccupied with that mm. for quite a while. Um, at other times, I've been more preoccupied with the whole Pentecostal side of it. And that sort of goes back to my research into Jesus. So it's only really in the last couple of years through reading some good biblical scholars that I've really, I think, understood what Pentecost is as a succession narrative. Um, so that, you know, then becomes something I feed on for a while. Um, <laughs> Tell us what a succession narrative is. Yes. So the way Luke tells the story, Luke draws heavily on the Old Testament, what is called the Septuagint, the Greek translation. He uses the exact same phrases, terms, and he echoes that all the time. And the closest parallel to the ministry of Jesus in the Old Testament is the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And the signs and and miracles that happened with them are repeated in Jesus, but with greater intensity. And the climax of Elijah's life is when Elisha sees him taken up. And then this anointing that was on Elijah comes on Elisha, and Elisha becomes his successor. And it is particularly the prophetic anointing that comes, because they were prophets. And Luke tells the story that as the disciples see Jesus ascend, then shortly afterwards, his anointing falls on the disciples. And they receive, Jesus had this prophetic ministry, and so now they become the sons and daughters of the prophets. They become this prophetic community. So the book of Acts narrates how they did all the things that Jesus did. They healed the sick, drove out demons, raised the dead, and operated like he did. And so they've become his successors. They become his successors. And we participate in that. Because his commission to, the, to them is the commission that we mm. live under today. And in the history of revivals and ongoing, you know, experiences of the Holy Spirit, that Pentecostal succession narrative or succession empowering is repeated again and again. Have you experienced that over kind of as you look back at the different times you've seen God move like us participating in that ministry? Oh, yes. I mean, I I actually um, sent Brock a manuscript of a book written in 1910 on revivals. Hmm. And all of them start very suddenly, spread very rapidly, and then have implications in terms of the churches being filled up again and then missions, and then the social implication of those missions, maybe for a generation thereafter. 
there are massive, it's like a, a ripple effect on a pond. There are massive ripples that follow those, those events. Um, so, I mean, I could tell stories. Uh, you know, we, we had that revival suddenly arrive in our church one Sunday morning and then last for a couple of years, you know, very overt phenomena. And we, I remember we went on a ministry trip to southern Namibia, all to Namibia. I took about 20 people. And, you know, a, a known cripple in the village walked. Mm. And these little children would come and be overpowered by the Holy Spirit and then lie there sort of out. And they'd wake up again and come and ask to be prayed for all over again. <laughs> And the thing is, there was no possible conditioning that could have happened. They had no idea about the news or anything. Um, and um, then we went to Vintuk, the capital city, and we had meetings there. And very quite dramatic scenes, you know, took place. So um, the revival, revivals empowering the church for mission you know, is something that was very consciously real for us. So it's almost as in what you're describing, I'm connecting it back. You were seeing those elements of the gospel, Jesus' ministry, mm. the forgiveness of sins, yes. resurrection, and empowering for mission. Like, yes, could you say I that's a scope true. of revival too? I think that's true. I mean, the other, the other great example was the Jesus People revival mm. that... Um, the, you know, the vineyard was founded on. And it hit our churches in Cape Town also from nowhere and then thousands of young people hmm. in a short period of time were converted. And a lot of what happened was this liberation. Hmm. There was quite a lot of, um, you know, the drugs then was just um, pretty pretty mild drugs like uh, marijuana, you know. It wasn't like heavy drugs, but they were into all sorts of, things these young kids you know it was the jesus people the sex revolution and so on and so exorcisms were mm. quite common um people just being liberated from a lifestyle of you know self-destruction um and i would say if you'd gone around interviewing those young people jesus ministry of liberation would have been mm. the one thing they I don't think they had any profound understanding of the atonement or later they would have grown into that. And and then the number of churches that were planted out mm. of that revival was really quite significant. I mean, just there was a sudden plethora of church plants. So that mission and empowering went out. Right. It just intrigues me to think that when I pray for revival, I'm praying, Jesus, bring your entire ministry to bear yes. here now mm. among us. Yes, indeed. Hmm. Yeah, that expands the scope of what I think revival is mm. and mm. what it's doing. Mm. How did it change you as a pastor to see that happen? So if I think back to when I was the senior pastor of a number of churches, um, I have preached on the kingdom since the late 70s. And I've continually learned more of what it means. So wherever I've been, they've heard me do a couple of series on the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that does expand one's understanding of the kingdom, of the gospel. You were preaching on the kingdom, mm. um, that that was part of the foundation that you were laying. Mm. This should seem obvious, but I'm asking it anyway. Mm. What's the correlation of the gospel we've been talking about and the kingdom? So Jesus comes announcing the good news of the kingdom. Good news is gospel. So the first mention of the gospel in the New Testament is Jesus' announcement of the kingdom. And throughout his ministry, you could almost say those are synonymous thoughts. Uh, The good news is the good news that the kingdom has come. Um, You know, there are some New Testament texts that are wonderful because they summarize everything. So... Matthew has these two summary statements that Jesus went about Galilee preaching the kingdom of God and healing the sick and delivering those who had demons. And it just summarizes. Then um, Luke in the book of Acts talks about how God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and how he went about doing good and delivering all those who were oppressed of the devil. So there's like a summary that brings it all together into one kind of sentence. And uh, so it's always the predominant theme, really, is the good news of Jesus announcing that the the coming age has dawned, that, Hmm. you know, Israel was expecting this messianic age. Now it has come. And essentially that is the good news, that God has come as he promised he would through all the Old Testament prophets. And then God has come through Jesus making this announcement, this good news that God has come. And then how has God come? Well, he's come through the ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Um, so I think there's the, there's the connection. This breaking in of the age to come mm-hmm. in the current age that started in Jesus, that really is the Christus victor. Yes, Yes, and Mark's gospel is the gospel that joins the dots because Jesus announces that the kingdom is breaking in and then there are these series of conflict stories where whether it's the demonic or sickness or the religious system or sometimes even his own disciples, it is always alternative authorities that are provoked by his authority which is the authority of the arriving rule of God. Hmm. And this conflict builds in the story until in the last week of Jesus' life, Mark talks about how all the religious authorities, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the um, Sanhedrin, the um, elders, the teachers of the law, often who used to argue with each other, now unite because they can't live with him. He's too much of a problem. And then, of course, they conspire to kill him. And then the Romans join in. And the way Mark tells the story, actually, all the powers of darkness join Hmm. because there's, you know, the darkness. And Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness in the Garden of Gethsemane. So actually, the authorities that collide with Jesus' authority are proxies for a larger clash, mm. and then the triumph of the resurrection, which, you know, 
just turns everything on its head. Um, so the idea of the new age has dawned, and as it comes, the powers of this present age rise up against it, but then are defeated. Christus Victor. That's the whole narrative, really, in, in brief. I'm sitting here wondering, there's this glory of this narrative when we talk about it in mm. these large terms. And then there's the actual daily experience of it. Mm. And so on an ordinary Tuesday in Cape Town or in Oklahoma City, how do we experience Christus Victor? Mm. I think we can think of it in a number of ways. We can think of it subjectively because we all have a daily struggle with ourselves and we think thoughts and we have feelings and we sometimes feel that we're not really walking with God as we should. We, we are accused of it by the devil and... Um, we sometimes do and say things that we think Christians shouldn't say. Often and then, do and say things. <laughs> and then we think, you know, am, am I even converted, you know? Yeah. But then, you know, through the spiritual disciplines of prayer and worship and reading the scriptures and fellowship and communion and all of that, the other st alternative story, you know, I am a new person. There's this new nature inside mm. of me. And Paul's, Paul is the expert who teaches us how we have to become who we are, put off the person you mm. were, and put on this new person that's made in the image of God in true righteousness. And Paul tells us we actually can. Because of the power of the resurrection, sin will no longer have dominion over you. You can predominantly live a victorious Christian life. So the daily walk of not pretending now we are without sin, but neither buying the idea that we are doomed to be defeated. No, we mm. are not. We are promised that we can live triumphantly. That's the first way it happens on a daily basis. And I mean, that's where Jesus says, you know, we must die daily. Yeah. And we must rise again daily. And I think that affects our inner conversation with ourselves. What am I saying to myself about who I am and um, drawing on all the resources I can? And of course, when we get together and we lay hands on each other and have small group meetings and encourage people to be transparent and share their journey, it's all part of it, that journey of the ongoing walk with God and as Paul says being transformed mm. from one degree of glory to another and he says the more we see Jesus the more we are transformed um, God has shone in our hearts through the revelation of Jesus and that's where he says we are transformed from one degree of glory to another so for me letting Jesus grow on you and receiving that Jesus is what empowers that transformation. So a morbid preoccupation with, with my struggles and 
my defeats doesn't actually help. But looking at Jesus and seeing what is mine because of him, then the more I walk in that, the more triumphant I can be. Um, so that's the first way, is, is the internal walk. But then, of course, there's the community. Mm. Um, there's something about growing in community. We don't learn individually. We learn in community. And uh, whether it's just one-on-one relationships with really good Christian friends and sitting around meals and talking mm. or small groups or being in corporate worship, um, if you... And this is, what, this is what worries me about the tendency of people to fall away from church activity today. Like you can be this private Christian who just does online stuff and reads books and you can be all right. That's not the case. We need the community experience. We grow in community. Um, so finding your place in the body, finding what gifts God has given you so that you can serve in an appropriate way, bring to the table what God wants you to bring to the table. And uh, Wimber used to have this non-grammatical word, otherliness. You know, being preoccupied with other people. Yeah, instead of yourself. Instead of yourself. I mean, that's essential. And then, of course, the world around us and our calling to redeem all of humanity and how can we... Um, not just hang around with Christians, but get into that challenge of interface with people who don't know God is also essential for our our spirituality and and um, whether it's the model of serving the poor or or, or whether it's the more exciting kind of signs and wonders <laughs> thing of going out and having prophetic words for people you've never met before or whatever, that's part of how we walk with God every day. I'm reminded of that really stereotypical story of the men working on the cathedral and some of them just see that they're putting in a day's work and others see that they're building this thing that will last forever. And I feel like the ordinary Tuesday is like that. I could just see... I'm going through the day, or I could say I'm participating yes. in the mission of Christ. Mm. I am experiencing the liberation mm. that Christ makes available to me. Yes, I'm engaging in the battle that Christus Victor won. That's right. Yeah. Mm. And we as humans um, live in stories. Mm. Uh, it's essential to our humanity. And... If we know the story, then we live in the story. And eventually, it's with us all the time, every smallest moment. I don't know, you probably know the story of Brother Lawrence. Yeah. The monk (laughs) who used to work in the kitchen. And then, you know, praise God that I can wash these dishes. And he made the whole of life glow around him because the most menial thing, was something he would praise God about. I mean, I think that's profound. I think we can, you know, make everything glow, even yeah. in the pain yeah. of disasters and, you know, 
very destructive things that happen in this world. It's such such a sad world. Um, but we can be living the future already because the kingdom has come. We're living in a story that glows. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been rich. Would you end by praying for the people listening as they live that story? Yeah. Yes, Lord, we come to you. We thank you for your presence that has come to us in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that whoever hears this conversation, that you will draw near to them and lift them up um, and encourage them by your Spirit and cause them to see you afresh and to be called again to walk with you. And so let your, the blessing of your kingdom come to all those who may hear this. In your name, amen. Amen indeed. Thank you. We've been talking today with Derek Morphew. If you'd like to go deeper with some of the things we talked about, there are two books that he's written that you can look for. The first one is called Breakthrough. There's a fifth edition of that. And then also look for the book, The Kingdom Reformation. I'm Connie Willems, and this has been the Kingdom Life Podcast from All Saints Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about All Saints, visit us at allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. OKC.